Station is one of the jewels of Kansas City. It was built in 1914, and by World War II, it was the second busiest railroad station in the country. But when people stopped taking passenger trains, the grand old lady fell into disrepair. By the 1980s, its walls were crumbling, the ceiling was leaking. Many people felt it was an eyesore and should be torn down but there was just too much history there. And so in 1996, the voters on both sides of the state line in Missouri and Kansas approved a tax, and the station was repaired and renewed. Today, it's one of my favorite places to go. There's a world-class restaurant inside, and a planetarium, an extreme movie theater, and a stage for innovative plays. It's also the home to Science City, a world-class children's science museum. It hosts traveling exhibitions of things like the Tutankhamun relics. And then there are the ghosts of all those people who pass through its halls, soldiers going off to war or returning from the fields of battle, families saying goodbye for the last time, or reuniting after years apart. And then... There are the bullet holes on the facade of the station. Near the front door are several indentations in the granite. Legend has it that they are bullet holes from the Union Station Massacre. And so when people visit us from out of town, we usually end up at Union Station. I point out the bullet holes and the plaque commemorating the four law enforcement officers who lost their lives that summer morning almost 90 years ago. So right now, settle back with a new cocktail, a Chief Mahomes, and listen to the story of the Union Station Massacre and how it led to the birth of the modern FBI. But keep listening and learn how it's all a lie. According to the official FBI files, here's what happened on June 17, 1933, at Kansas City's Union Station. Frank Jelly Nash, Jelly was short for Jelly Bean because he was such a cute, likable kid, was a bank robber. He began his association with the criminal justice system in 1913 when he was sentenced to life in prison in Oklahoma for bank robbery and murder. He and his partner robbed a bank, and while his partner was in a cave burying the loot, Jelly shot him in the back. But he was a model prisoner, and he was pardoned. He got out, and of course robbed another bank with dynamite, another 25-year sentence. And again, he was pardoned. Four years later, he robbed a post office. One more time, 25 years. No pardon this time. He was sent to the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. This time he escaped. The FBI and the McAllister, Oklahoma police chief finally caught up with Nash on June 16, 1933, at a store in Hot Springs, Arkansas. That night, two FBI agents, Frank Smith and Joe Lackey, along with McAllister police chief Otto Reed, 
got on a train in Fort Smith, Arkansas, heading to Kansas City. From there, they would take him back to Leavenworth. The train was due to arrive in Kansas City at 7.15 the following morning. They made arrangements with the FBI's special agent in charge in Kansas City, Reed Vetterelli, to meet them at the train station. But word evidently travels fast. Some of Jelly's friends had already heard of his capture and that he would be arriving by train at Union Station. Vern Miller was one of those friends. He contacted some other gangsters to help spring Jelly Nash. Fortunately for them, two big-name hoodlums were cooling it in Kansas City, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd and his sidekick, Adam Ricchetti. They agreed to help bust out Jelly. The Liberation Party was waiting at Union Station when the train pulled in. Special Agent in Charge, Vetterelli, along with FBI Agent R.J. Caffrey and two Kansas City police officers, W.J. Grooms and Frank Hermanson, were also waiting for the train. They formed a V-shaped wedge around Jelly Nash, who was in handcuffs, and led him off the train and through the station. They had two cars waiting to take him to Leavenworth. They paused at the door and didn't see anything suspicious. Agent Caffrey opened the door of the car. Nash got in the back seat, but Agent Lackey told him to get in the front seat so he could keep an eye on him. Lackey got in behind him, and Smith and Chief Reed sat in the back seat as well. Agent Caffrey walked around the car and was going to get in the driver's seat and drive to Leavenworth. Special Agent Betterelli and the two Kansas City police officers were standing beside the car. In the back seat, Agent Lackey saw two men run behind a car. At least one of them had a gun. Before Lackey could warn his fellow officers, one of the gunmen shouted, Up! 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 Vetterelli turned just in time to hear someone yell, Let him have it! Shots rang out. The two Kansas City police officers immediately went down, killed instantly. Verletti was hit in the arm and went down. He saw Agent Caffrey fall, shot in the head. Inside the car, Chief Reed and Jelly Nash were hit from bullets from the hoodlum's guns. They, too, were killed instantly. Agent Lackey was hit three times, but he survived. Only Agent Smith, who ducked behind the seats on the floor, was not wounded. Three gunmen rushed to the car and looked inside. They're all dead. Let's get out of here. And they sped off in a dark-colored Chevrolet. The whole thing took less than one minute. A Kansas City police officer ran out of the station. He fired at one of the gangsters, later identified as Pretty Boy Floyd. Floyd stumbled but kept running. The officer was pretty sure that he had hit him in the shoulder. The FBI, led by a young J. Edgar Hoover, immediately began an interrogation. Through interrogations, intensive legwork, and the lucky discovery of a fingerprint on a beer bottle, they determined that Vern Miller, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Adam Ricchetti had carried out the crime. The feds tracked Miller to Chicago. They set a trap for him, but he eluded them. On November 29th, they found his mutilated body on the outskirts of Detroit. He had been hit by the New Jersey mob, 
because he had shot one of their gangsters. Floyd and Merchetti left Kansas City and holed up in Ohio, where they met a couple of girls. The four of them rented an apartment. They mostly stayed to themselves, but neighbors reported that sometimes the girls would lean out a window and throw candy to children below. Pretty Boy and Ricchetti often joked around with the kids on the sidewalk. On October 20th, they decided to return to Pretty Boy's home state of Oklahoma. Near Wellsville, Ohio, the police saw two suspicious men in the woods. A gun battle ensued. The officers thought one of them had been hit. Two days later, they spotted a car. Pretty Boy jumped out firing. As the police approached, he said, I'm done for. You've hit me twice. He died at the hospital 15 minutes later. Ricchetti was captured and tried in Kansas City. He was convicted, sentenced to death. His sentence was appealed and he was given a new trial. Same result. He was finally executed by the state of Missouri on October 7, 1938, in the gas chamber. Before the Union Station massacre, the Federal Bureau of Investigation was just that, an investigatory agency under the Treasury Department. Agents were not armed. They couldn't request search warrants. In fact, they even had no power to make arrests. Following the publicity generated by this case, however, J. Edgar Hoover was able to convince Congress that the FBI should become a real federal police force. They were given the power to investigate, request search warrants, and make arrests. They were also armed with machine guns. The legend of the FBI and the clean-cut, courageous G-Man was born that June day in Kansas City. Just one problem. The legend was founded on a lie. Robert Unger was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and the Kansas City Star. He spent years investigating the massacre and eventually read the entire 89-volume FBI file on the crime. And in his 2005 book, The Union Station Massacre, The Original Sin of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, he pieced together the true story. In order to understand what really happened and why, we need to understand that in the 1930s, Kansas City was one of the most corrupt towns in the United States. The power of its bosses and criminal gangs was second only to Chicago and Al Capone. A question that's baffled many people is, how did Jelly Nash's friends know when and how he would arrive in Kansas City? The obvious answer is that they must have been tipped off by someone in the police department. Another question that has plagued this investigation is, why didn't the police who were supposed to guard Nash carry more firepower? The Kansas City police detective W.J. Grooms was supposed to bring the department's hotshot car to pick up Nash. This was a specially outfitted car containing a machine gun. When Groom and his fellow detective Hermanson picked up the car, the machine gun wasn't in it. They left anyway. At the station, they, along with FBI agents Smith and Caffrey, were only armed with 38 caliber revolvers. Chief Reed and Lackey had the only real firepower. Lackey had a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, 
and Reed had his personal 16-gauge shotgun that he had modified to fire like a machine gun. When they all met at Union Station, Reed and Lackey inadvertently picked up the other's shotgun. Lackey, unfortunately, didn't know about all of the modifications that Reed had made to his weapon. When Lackey got into the car, Nash was actually behind the wheel, waiting for Caffrey to get in, and then he would scoot over in the middle of the front seat. Lackey was directly behind Nash, with the butt of the unfamiliar shotgun resting on the floor, while the shaft of the gun was wedged between his legs. When the would-be rescuers showed up, Jelly Nash saw them coming. He took off his toupee, waved it in the air, and said, Fellas, I'm over here! At that point, one of the hoodlums yelled, Put him up! 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 Lackey was trying to raise the shotgun from between his legs. As he did so, he inadvertently pumped to the gun, which put a live round in the chamber. The trigger had already been modified to shoot like a machine gun. And so as Lackey pumped it and started to raise the gun from between his legs, it went off. Lackey accidentally blew a hole in Jelly Nash's head, killing him instantly. The homemade ball bearing shot also blew a hole in the windshield and hit Agent Caffrey, who was standing in front of the car. He died at the hospital. Lackey was panicking. He was finally able to free the gun and swing it out the window when it went off again. This time, the shot popped Detective Hermanson in the head, killing him instantly. Hearing these two shots go off inside the car, the gangsters started firing, killing Grooms and Chief Reed. Lackey was hit as well, as was Special Agent in Charge for Letty. Harry Orr was a cab driver, standing just a few feet away. He saw Lackey struggling with the gun and saw and heard the first blast from inside the car. In his initial report, Lackey all but admitted that this was what had happened, but J. Edgar Hoover couldn't release this information. It wouldn't do to admit that an FBI agent had panicked and killed three men, a gangster, an FBI agent, and a Kansas City detective. No, Hoover needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to pin this on, and fortunately, he had one or two. He knew that pretty boy Floyd was in Kansas City that day. He also found a beer bottle in a hotel room that had Adam Ricchetti's fingerprint on it. He loudly proclaimed that the FBI had the criminals, pretty boy Floyd and Adam Ricchetti, and that the FBI had solved the case. The rest, as they say, is history. Hoover said that when they finally caught Pretty Boy Floyd, he could prove it was him because he had been hit in the shoulder by the police officer who ran out of the station. Well, when the police and the FBI finally encountered Pretty Boy Floyd in that Ohio field that day, according to witnesses, one of either a policeman or an FBI agent approached Floyd and asked him about the Union Station massacre. Floyd said he wasn't going to tell them anything, at which point the officer pulled down a gun and shot him in the head. At the autopsy, you guessed it, there were no bullet wounds in his shoulder. But the FBI's legend was born. 
Oh, and the bullet holes in the granite facade at Union Station? A few years ago, the Kansas City police analyzed those holes. The conclusion, they weren't bullet holes at all. What a ride. What a mess. My goodness. You all couldn't see me, but I have my hands on my face and just that cringe look the whole time, the whole second half of that story. So, <laughs> yeah, this was all news to me. I mean, I, I hadn't, I just knew about the legend and I've, I've taken dozens of people down to Union Station and said, here are the bullet holes. And we've read the plaque and we've talked about uh, the Union Station massacre. And uh, so for those of you who've been to Kansas City and heard my story, please accept my apology. So what were they, if not bullet holes? They don't know. They were just faults in the granite. Oh, my gosh. How funny. They'd analyzed them. They found no gunpowder, no residue. Uh, Jeez, Louise. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, we will come back to that. Mm -hmm. But first, Dad, I think you knew this, but I'm sure it will be a surprise for some listeners. Did you know that Kansas City used to be a fashion hub of the world? I knew it was a fashion hub, but I didn't. I didn't realize that extent. But uh, no, it, it was a. It was a. They, they had a very thriving garment industry here, um, back in the uh, back in the day. Yep. So I'm going to tell our listeners about that. Uh, this is the trends of the crime, and that's the part of our show where I tell you about fashion that has to do with the crime. So today I'm going to go over the Kansas City Garment District, and I got this information from an NPR article called How Kansas City Clothed the Midwest for Much of the 20th Century. And just to reiterate, I was being dramatic. It was not a hub of the entire world. Just want to take that false claim off the table here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the garment district stretched from 6th to 11th Streets and from Washington to Wyandotte. So downtown, mm -hmm. right? Right. Not... Um if, I, if my geography is correct, that would be just a little bit north of the Kansas City uh, Power and Light District, which many of our listeners may have seen, uh, you know, during the Super Bowls when the large crowd was gathered and celebrating. So it's now one of the main entertainment districts in the region. But yeah, that's where the Garment District would have been, right down mm -hmm. there. And there is a boutique called Kansas City Garment District or something, and it's mm -hmm. a boutique collective, so you can... Go shop there. And there's a museum about mm -hmm. the Garment District as well. Now, did you know that if you were to drive down 11th Street, I, I believe between uh, Maine and Wyandotte, there's just a short street that dead ends into a parking garage now. And mm -mm. Uh, the street sign is still up. The name of that street is Petticoat Lane. Oh. So... We still even have a bit of a bit of history, but 11th Street back in the day was mm -hmm. known as Petticoat Lane. Oh, I didn't know that. Do you know what a petticoat is? Yes. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to make sure. I was a fashion major. Okay. I had to do history class. Anyway, yes, I know what a petticoat is. <laughs> uh, so the garment district here in Kansas City made clothes for laborers and farmers house dresses for homemakers, and uniforms for industry and the military. Seamstresses made clothing every day that people ordered from mail-order catalogs and retail shops across the Midwest and South. 
Do you know what a mail order catalog? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I used to wait anxiously once a year for the Sears or Montgomery Ward's catalogs to arrive at our house. I There were certain pictures in those catalogs oh, that gross. I enjoyed as a young man. <laughs> I'm sure. I wish that was still a thing because back on Black Friday, back in the day when you actually had to look through all the pages and circle what you wanted, like that was so fun. And now Black Friday is starting uh, now <laughs> and it's all lame. Anyway, Kansas City's central locations made it a hub for clothing that needed to travel on the railroads from the east to the west. Kansas City shops drew much of their workforce from families that had immigrated from Italy and other countries. And workers lacked thorough tailoring skills, so local shops used the section system in which each worker was assigned to make only one part of a garment over and over. So you'd be assigned like the bodice and someone else would be assigned the sleeves. So that way, everyone mastered their own clothing part. Mm -hmm. Pretty smart. The Donnelly Company uh, didn't want to do things this way, though. Nell Donnelly, heard of her? I have not, no. Nell Donnelly Reed was an American fashion designer and businesswoman known for her house dresses who founded the Nellie Don brand. So she was a designer. The head of the organization formed the company's own union and went to court to fend off attempts by outside organizers. Not until the late 1960s was the dressmaker unionized, but by then Nell Donnelly had sold her interest. Mm. After the war and into the 1950s, the local garment industry peaked. Estimates put total employment at 4,000 or 5,000, spread among as many as 75 companies. For a time, clothing manufacturing ranked as Kansas City's second largest industry, and the city's garment industry ranked second only to New York's. So we were the big leagues. You know, just think, if, if history had taken a little bit of a different turn... Fashion Week would be in Kansas City, right? And you'd be right in the middle of it all if, I know. if history had just taken just a little turn somewhere down the line. Would have been amazing. Mm -hmm. We do have our own Fashion Week, but, you know, it's, uh, it's at <laughs> Oak Park Mall, so that's all you need to know about that. <laughs> By the 1960s, however, mechanization in agriculture had reduced the number of workers on farms and ranches, which in turn reduced demand for work clothes. With rural migration to cities and with the growth of chain retailers, small apparel shops went out of business in towns across the region. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened, and that's why we're mm. not still the second biggest fashion hub in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Darn. Interesting history. I also have a list of Kansas City-based fashion companies here. Rightfully Sewn. Rightfully Sewn is the organization that got me into social media. Uh, they gave me a social media internship. And what they do is they have a seamstress training program that helps at-risk women become seamstresses, which mm. in turn helps small fashion designers in Kansas City grow their businesses while mm. helping the Kansas City economy and helping women. So it's really awesome. Uh, Nickel and Suede, uh, she makes earrings and she, and more now, but she started with those leather, these leather earrings mm -hmm. and she's huge now and she's awesome. Uh, Charlie Hustle, they make cool t-shirts. You know, Charlie Hustle, right? No. Well, I know, I know uh, Pete Rose, the baseball player. His nickname was Charlie Hustle. Oh. 
So now, you, now you're telling me Pete Rose is into fashion and not gambling anymore? Is I that would, what you're telling me? I would guess he that they got the name from him, but he himself has nothing to do oh, with this. Oh, okay. Well, now <laughs> I'm sad. You know those shirts with the heart and the KC in them? Yes. That's Charlie Hustle. Oh, okay. That's what got them on the map back around when uh, the Royals won the World Series. Ah. Back when we started to get cool, you know? Yes. Essence of Australia, they are a bridal gown company in Lenexa. Now, let me ask you a question. Yes. We're nowhere near Australia. We're kind of landlocked in the middle of the United States. Why, why are they calling themselves the essence of Australia? Well, the owners are Australian. Ah. But they opened, a, so they have a, an office in Australia. I don't know what's, I think Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And they also have an office here in Lenexa because they live here now. Hmm. I've interviewed with them a few times, mm-hmm. but uh, never went anywhere. Yeah. Anyway. So they have good taste is what ha, you're telling ha, me. You're so funny. <laughs> we also have Baldwin denim. These jeans, why don't you guess how much a pair of these jeans are? $123. Um, no, like $750 Whoa. Whoa. for a pair of jeans. Whoa. I can't even afford to try a pair on. <laughs> But I guess they're beautiful, so that's cool. Halls, which mm-hmm. is um, Hallmark Company. What's the? Do you know a brief history of Halls, Dad? Well, it, it's a family company. Donald Hall is the chairman. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know anything about it. I just assumed that his family started Hallmark and also started this department store. Mm-hmm. I assume there's a connection, but no, I don't know. I think there, yeah, and. It's just a very fancy department store with very expensive designers and brands. Mm -hmm. And it's in um, Crown Center Mm -hmm. in Kansas City. Which is right across the street from Hallmark. Right. It's a cool place. Cool place to look around. Yeah, when I was was researching that Petticoat Lane, uh, they talked about another famous uh, Kansas City department store that's no longer in business. It's called uh, Emory Bird Thayer. Oh. Uh, and so they had they had two stores in Kansas City, and they they sold a lot of high end fashion back then. Um, the only vestige of them that was left was they had a restaurant that I think sometimes you were you would go to on your birthday called the EBT restaurant. Yes, and you could actually eat in the in the old elevator. Old elevator, but that's gone too now. Yeah, but that's where the EBT got their name after Emory Bird Thayer Department Store. Cool. That was good food, too. Mm-hmm. Sad it's gone. Yes. The last fashion-based company here in KC that I could think of, but I'm sure there are plenty more, is Maddie Apparel. I also had an internship with them. They make lingerie out of uh, ethically sourced fabrics or environmentally conscious fabrics like bamboo. And for each piece of underwear sold, they donate a pair to a woman in need in a domestic violence shelter mm. or, a, or a homeless shelter. So that's another really awesome company mm-hmm. right in our neighborhood. Mm. Yeah. So Cool. And it's cute stuff yeah. too. Well, tell us about this cocktail you made up. Well, I didn't make it up. I, oh. I found it online. I was looking for a Kansas City cocktail and uh, found a couple. We've had one already called the Horse Feather, which is just a Moscow mule with, with whiskey instead of vodka. Uh, another one called Kansas City Ice Tea or Kansas City Ice Water, which is basically a gin and tonic with 7-Up. And I didn't think that was interesting. But then I saw the Chief Mahomes, named after, of course, our very own Patrick Mahomes II. 
quarterback extraordinaire. It looks pretty good. It's uh, it is a, uh, a cocktail containing, uh, I think, an ounce and a half of whiskey, half ounce of amaretto for some sweetness and nutty flavor, and a half ounce of lime juice and five ounces of uh, cranberry juice. So kind of like a Cape Cod, but again, substituting the the whiskey and, and amaretto for the vodka. So we'll we'll try that. Do you have those ingredients here today? I absolutely do. I think we should drink one for the game I this afternoon. So. Yes. Well, maybe maybe after we make sure Patrick doesn't throw more league-leading interceptions, maybe we could have it in the second half. Yes. See if he deserves yes. the cocktail today. Yes. Hmm. Anyway. Otherwise, we might have to name it the Chief Kelsey cocktail. I was going to say, <laughs> Chief uh, Hill cocktail. Yes. I don't know. Holly, we still love you, Patrick. Yes, we do. We will always love you. Anyway, well, you sort of did an overview on Union Station, mm-hmm. but I thought I'd do a history lesson as well. Please but do. it's probably a lot of repeated information. But here we go. Union Station opened in 1914. Well, the original Union Station did. Mm-hmm. It served, or was it this version? Well, there's only one. It's the same. They just building. renovated it. It's the same okay, building, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, it opened in 1914, and it served as a peak annual traffic of more than 670,000 passengers in 1945 at the end of World War II. It quickly declined in the 1950s, and then it was closed in 1985. Sad. One of the the features at Union Station that's still there is there's this big round clock. Mm -hmm. You remember that out Mm -hmm. in the middle of the what used to be the passenger waiting area? And uh, people would uh, would say, "I'll meet you under the clock." Oh, so that's cute. That was that was a big meeting place. If people were coming into the train, they'd just say, "We'll meet you under the clock." Well, if everyone met under the clock, how did anyone find that's anybody? True. <laughs> Goodness. In 1996, a public-private partnership undertook Union Station's 250 million dollar restoration funded in part by a sales tax levied in both Kansas and Missouri counties in the Kansas City metropolitan area. And that's the first time that that ever happened anywhere in the country where oh, two, really? two states actually cooperated to, to build or to, you know, to renovate a, a cultural uh, jewel like Union Station. So I love that because that means everyone wanted it to come mm-hmm. back. That's sweet. By 1999, the station reopened as a series of museums and other public attractions. In 2002, Union Station saw its return as a train station Mm -hmm. when Amtrak began providing public transportation services and has since become Missouri's second busiest train station. The refurbished station boasts theaters, ongoing exam exhibits, and attractions such as Science City, the Irish Museum and Cultural Center, and the Todd Bolander Center for Dance and Creativity. Since 2016, it is also a stop on the KC Streetcar. We actually got to ride a train that left from Union Station. That's right. Went to Chicago. It was a long train yeah. ride. <laughs> yeah. Well, your your mom and I years ago got on the train at Union Station and rode it all the way to Oregon. Wow. How so, long was that? Oh, it was a good three days, I think. Huh. Uh, we stopped at the Grand Canyon for one day and got off and then caught the Southwest Chief as it continued on to Los Angeles and then took the 
coast sunlight up to Oregon. So it was a fun cool. trip. I will uh, give some lessons to those listening that I learned on my first big train ride. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I assumed there would be Wi-Fi on a train, but there is not. (laughs) So download your Netflix movies and shows before your train ride. Don't be like me where you have 10 hours of absolutely nothing to do. Uh, It was also very cold. Mm -hmm. Um, So bring blankets. But on the positive side, they do have a bar. They do have a bar. It was really fun. I really liked doing it. I mean, I wouldn't make that my... uh, my, uh, what do you call it? Regular form of travel, but it was still really cool. I would do it again for sure. And it was cool to actually use Union Station for Mm -hmm. its original purpose. So it was the second Union Station in the country after Indianapolis. The architect chosen to design the Union Station building was Jarvis Hunt, a proponent of the city beautiful movement. Let me see what that is. Do you know anything about that? No. Mm -mm. Let's see. The City Beautiful Movement was a reform philosophy of North American architecture and urban planning that flourished during the 1890s and 1900s with the intent of introducing beautification and monumental grandeur in cities. Cool. And for those of you who might find yourself in Kansas City sometime, a fun thing to do, they do have ghost tours at Union Station. Yeah. They have people who dress up like conductors or Harvey girls. Harvey girls were, uh, were train stations all over the country had Harvey coffee shops oh. and the waitresses were called Harvey girls. So they have some people who dress up in the old Harvey girl costumes or uniforms and take around and tell you some cool ghost stories about Union Station too. Cute. Love that. I need to do that. Union Station receives no public funding. Current operating costs are funded by general admission and theater ticketing, grants, corporate and private donations, commercial space leases, and facility rental. So it's a nonprofit. So that's cool. And lastly, I did not know this. In April 2015 and again in 2017, American Ninja Warrior was filmed at Union Station. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a show I can thankfully say I've never seen. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Never seen it. Still cool. I had no idea. Next up, I wanted to talk about Leavenworth Prison. Mm -hmm. Because it's big and scary. Yes, it is. That's why I don't want to live in Leavenworth. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's like the scariest prison you could ever see. Honestly. Federal penitentiary. That's where where, uh, a lot of really bad, bad people end up. Uh-huh. Terrorists, bombers. Zero. Is it still though? Because now it's a what is it now? It's no longer a maximum security prison. It's now a medium security. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, it just ha- well, it happened in mm. 2005. So I think back in the day, the really mm. scary people were yeah. there, but yeah. now not so much. Yeah, I don't know where they go now. Well, I know if they're if they're going to be executed, they go to Terre Haute, Indiana. Ooh. Wouldn't want to live there either. Uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary was the largest maximum security federal prison in the U.S. from 1903 until 2005, when it was downgraded to a medium security prison. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that either until I read that. I thought it was still max security. Here are three famous escapees of the Leavenworth Penitentiary. Frank Grigware, he was imprisoned for train robbery. He escaped from Leavenworth in 1910 
with five other men by smashing through the prison gates with a hijacked supply locomotive. While the others were quickly recaptured, Grigware escaped to Canada. In 1916, he became the mayor of Spirit River, Alberta. He was discovered by the RCMP and the FBI in 1933, but serious doubts about his original conviction led the U.S. to drop its extradition request in 1934. Grigware never returned to the U.S. and died in Alberta in 1977. That's hilarious. It is. He became the mayor, Derry. <laughs> Do you think he... Uh, Adopted an accent, eh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably became a big hacky fan, too, eh? Oh, yeah. You know what? This could never happen today. No. Ever. There's no way that would ever happen. But good on Frank Grigware. I'm glad he got to become a mayor in, yes. in such a nice country like Canada. Basil Banghart escaped from Leavenworth three times. He escaped federal custody a fourth time while awaiting return to Leavenworth. Hmm. On December 11th, 1931, seven inmates took Warden Thomas B. White hostage and escaped, aided by the well-known gangsters, the ones we're talking about today, mm -hmm. Frank Nash, George Machine Gun Kelly, and Thomas James Holden. Yep. Jelly Nash. Jelly Nash. Next, I've got an execution that happened in Leavenworth. On September 5th, 1930, serial killer Carl Panzram, under a federal death sentence for murder, was hanged at USP Leavenworth. On August 12th, 1938, two men under the sentence of death for murder, Robert Suhey and Glenn Applegate, were hanged at Leavenworth. Were those the only executions at Leavenworth? I don't think so. I, don't I think, think they so were just either. notable yeah. ones. Mm -hmm. Now, I had heard the Leavenworth was haunted. Mm -hmm. You've heard that too, oh, right? Yeah. So I looked up Ghosts at Leavenworth, and I found an article called Cold Spots, Leavenworth Prison by Steve Barton for Dread Central. Here's what Steve had to say. While few of the ghosts have been identified, they've been reported by not only inmates, but guards as well. Some of the more interesting hauntings surround the towers that surround the buildings. Towers 4, 6, 7, and 8 have all been the scenes of weird events, including the sounds of phantom doors being opened and closed, boots climbing the staircases, and, in a few cases, someone trying to force their way through the trap doors where the guards sit. In every case, even when backup has been called, the towers were reported empty. Tower 8, which reportedly has no power and has, in fact, been bricked out, regularly makes telephone calls to the control station. Tower 8 is the reported site of a suicide of one of the guards. Ooh, chills. Other interesting phenomena center around Building 65, which was, at one time, the prison hospital. Reports of screaming from the elevator shaft and also reports of a third-floor specter of a man in a wheelchair being pushed by a friend. The wheelchair ghost has been responsible for many inmates waking up, going down to the guard station, and informing the guards that the wheelchair guy woke them up. Spooky. Hmm. Mm. What do you think? Think it's real? Well, you know, I'm more of a skeptic on this than you are. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. So until, uh, until your nanny comes back and haunts me, I'm going to say probably not. Which I can't believe hasn't happened I already. Can't. Well, you know, that that's part of why I don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> you may have a point there. <laughs> but I believe it all. I believe any ghost story anyone tells me. Even 
ghost tours, which have been called fake many times. I still believe them. Anyway, some other famous Kansas City crimes. We've talked about some of these. Bob Berdella, of course. Mm -hmm. We had an episode on Mr. Berdella. Who is Dr. Bennett Hyde? That's what I'm looking at right now, and I'm not finding him. I I wonder, I think this may be, yeah. Murdering a real estate developer. Right. Um, Swope Park in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. You ever, have you ever heard of, of yep. Swope Park? I have. Um, he was, um, Dr. Bennett Hyde was someone who was, was dating one of the Swope uh, girls, and um, then there were some mysterious illnesses that that may or may not have been poisonings. Um, mm. That was the. Uh, I don't think it was ever convicted of any of this. Yeah, three trials, uh, three mistrials. So he was never convicted. What's apoplexy? Ah, uh, don't know. I've heard that word. That's how he died, apparently. Yeah. Unconsciousness or incapacity resulting from a cerebral hemorrhage or stroke. Okay, yeah. So stroke, I guess. But yeah, he was. Uh, he was. He was accused of uh, poisoning some members of the Swope family. Hmm. Sketch. Next, uh, the FBI here in Kansas City helped pursue Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And then, who was the doctor we covered? The the doctor who killed her husband or oh. didn't kill him poisoned her husband deborah green yeah yeah she was another one mm-hmm. here in kansas City. Yeah. any others well poisoned her husband and killed her two children I, yeah i'm killed sure her there, two children I, i'm sure there are many others but yes it's the ones who are coming to mind right now mm-hmm. well let me let me ask you this macy had you ever heard the alternate story of the union station massacre that i talked about I definitely had not. Okay. Well, what do you think? What do you think that's the way it really happened or Yes, because <laughs> it's just so like ridiculous. It's too ridiculous to have not happened. Like I feel like criminals aren't always the smartest and just like Well, this wasn't a criminal. This was an FBI agent. Oh, right, right. I should say. Well, I'm thinking of when the gun just kept going off between Mm -hmm. his legs. Like, it just feels like. Yeah. Feels more realistic to me, I should say. Yeah, well, I'm sure you can, you'll probably be posting some pictures on our website later. And if you look at the pictures, it just seemed obvious to me this is what happened because it showed the, uh, the glass, the windshield had a huge hole in it and the glass was laying on the hood of the car. So obviously the car, the window had been blown out from the inside. Agent Caffrey's body was again right, right in the line of the windshield. There, the the frame of the car uh, had been hit and was bending outside. So I think I think the the evidence is very clear that uh, it happened just as Mister Unger says it happened. Just uh, you know, again a comedy of errors, um, big misunderstanding and. That J. Edgar Hoover was able to use, and and yeah, you know, that that really did that built the FBI. This was their first big nationwide case where, uh, and he milked it for all it was worth. He mm-hmm. went to Congress and said, "Hey, we've even without power, we solved this crime. Think what we could do for this country if if we had, you know, the powers to really be a, a police force." And he got it. So 
th- this is a, a great uh, a great story in the in the building of the FBI. But yeah, I think I think Mr. Unger nailed it. I think this was just a well a comedy of error. I mean, I hate to say comedy of errors when when four police officers were killed, but I think this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems more like I don't know. And things like that, nothing, things hardly ever seem to go as perfectly planned. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like that makes more sense. Of just like everyone just panicking and not really knowing what's going on anywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, right. a big and, mess. Right. And we've never really identified how many uh, hoodlums there were trying to spring Jelly Nash. There could have been three or four or more. Uh Seems pretty obvious. Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Ricchetti uh, were not two mm-hmm. of them. Um, a number of people have been identified as possibilities. Just, you know, some Kansas City uh, hoodlums because Kansas City was a, a wild town back in the 30s. It was run by boss Tom Pendergast and uh, police were corrupt. City government was corrupt. So there were a number of candidates who who could have been involved in this. Uh, Unger said that he thinks whoever it was, when they showed up, they didn't expect any gunfire because they were armed. They knew the cops weren't. They planned just to go up to the car, point the guns, and say, "You know, we want we want Jolly Nash." Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they had no reason to start shooting, right? Uh, until the gun went off, and then everybody started in. Right. That's exactly what I think. Makes the most sense to me, mm-hmm. for sure. This case has been in the media a little bit, so mm-hmm. like usual, we can close off with this. There was a TV movie titled Kansas City Massacre in 1975. The paranormal show Ghost Adventures investigated Union Station in season eight. Uh, the basis of the episode is the potential residual hauntings by the men murdered outside the building during the massacre. Mm-hmm. A graphic novel based on the Kansas City Massacre titled Union Station was originally written by Andy Parks and drawn by Eduardo Barreto in 2003 and re-released in 2009. Sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, on August 3rd, 2015, Gangland Wire documentary filmmaker Gary Jenkins published a three-episode true crime story podcast about the Union Station Massacre. Hmm. That's all there is. Okay, well... We'll see if anybody uh, has any more information on the Union Station massacre, or thinks if we're just, you know, trying to be sensational and and uh, don't have the real story. Right. Guess we'll see. I we may, you know, some of our listeners may have a connection. So yeah. if you do, let us know. Please. I'm trying to pull up next week's episode. Here we go. Where is Jimmy Hoffa? Ah, that's next week. That'll be fun. Yes. James Hoffa. Yep. So can't wait to talk about that next week. Okay. And uh, I'm not quite as excited to watch the Chiefs today, but uh, with Aaron Rodgers out, we'll see We're if hopeful. we can pull out a win. We're hopeful. <laughs> All right. Go, Go Chiefs! This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. 
Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 